here's the difference. All of us have a CRM tool, right? All of us have tools that go out and touch our clients. My CRM tool touches my clients 50 times over the course of the five years. So what? That doesn't mean very much. All that does is keeps me top of mind. You know, who cares? Happy birthday, happy anniversary, change your furnace filter, happy Halloween. Who cares about that stuff? That means nothing, right? We've actually built a tool that actually creates value. So through these 13 campaigns, when we touch a client, we're only touching them if there's value. So what's value to a client, right? What's value? Value could be saving them money, right? Value could be protecting them against themselves and the product and the marketplace. And value could be finding and solving their pain points, right? So what I call pop, right? For me, pop is pain points, opportunity to save money and protect your clients. There's a different framework within what we talk about in our training, but once you go down this path with a client, you've got them for life. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today, I'm going to actually do a different show. We're going to take clips from a bunch of our shows that we think are very useful and interesting and combine them into a clip show. We do this every year. So we basically highlight some of the interesting conversations that we've had over the last year. Before I jump into that, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform that is very easy for borrowers to use. It's got some cool features like smart docs, which figures out exactly what documents the clients need as they're filling it out. It's got smart submission notes. So before you hit the submit button, all the key data is coming into the submission. And then it's also connected to Letter Spotlight, which is the best tool for searching for rates and guidelines. Check them out at lendescom slash Finmo. And let's jump into this clip show. All right. So in this first one, it's from episode 382, Livian Smith on finding her why and quadrupling her volume in 2021. And I think this is an amazing conversation because Livian up until that point had kind of been at the same volume for many, many years. And it was only when she figured out her why that her volume exploded. And I think it's an important thing for any of us to do for in this business is getting clear on our why. So check out this conversation with Livian. You had something when we were chatting before, you had said to me something about how you had this goal to always just break $100,000, you know, in a year as a mortgage broker. So how long did that take for that to actually happen for you? I think it was 2018. That was how many years in? Because you started in what, 2000 and... 2005, yeah. So that was, was like 13 years. 13 years it took, yeah, 12 or 13 years it took me to break 100. To break 100. And then, so what was the volume that year in 2018? You remember what was approximately? I... Uh, I think it was about 11 or 12 million. So what's happened in the last few years? Because last year you had like a crazy jump. So walk me through sort of some of those numbers. And I want to dive into kind of some of the things that, you know, put you down this path. 2020 was 15 million. So basically you were at 11, then you got up to 15. But at that point, that was your best year ever, right? Yeah, I think it was like 11, 12, then 15, and up to 2020. So 18, 19, 20 was like just slow progression. Okay. So then tell me about 2021. What was your volume last year? 2021, we went back, you know, like Dominion Lending Centers has this thing internally where they track your volume for you every month. And it's based on when you get paid on a deal, right? So based on that, it was 57 million. And we went back and we did the calculations based on real numbers for like January to December. It was actually 60 million. Right. You went from 15 million to 60 million, which is a monster jump. I mean, the market did not do four times. So what was going on in your personal life or what was the switch that flipped in your head? Because you were, for me, I see a person who's kind of, 
you know, like the little train that could, I think I can just keep chugging along, chug, chug, and you keep making incremental improvements. And then boom, there's like this huge spike that happened. So can you tell me what was happening at that time? Well, okay. So 2020, when the pandemic hit, just before the pandemic hit, I was thinking I was probably going to do about 18 to 20 million because yeah. the year previous we'd done 15 and, you know, I was consistently had business going, my board was looking pretty healthy and then the pandemic hit. And then I lost quite a bit of those files. They ended up renewing with their existing lender. Just, you know, there was a lot of things that happened. So I think there was like about one or $2 million in volume that I lost that just was gone. Mm-hmm. And then everything stopped. And so I just went into a little bit of panic mode. And then I just started calling all my clients and it's like, is there anything I can do for you? Like, you know, this is hard for all of us, but you know, deferrals. And I was just on the phone with my clients. And then I joined a mentor group, a newbie mentorship group. Cause I thought I need to just start from the beginning and move myself up and do some of the things that I haven't done in my business up until this point, which were making the daily phone calls, connecting with clients, uh, connecting with referral partners. So I started to do that. So that was in 2020. And then by the end of the year in 2020, I got 15 million, which I think was pretty good because the first half of the year was five. There was, yeah, there was a, definitely a dip for that first yeah. few months. It was like everybody, their collective breath, like that's it. Like we all, yeah, we're done. You know, you're working at Subway. No more you know? mortgages. I've got to find yeah. something else to do now, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, or reduce my spending. So the first half I did five, the second half I did 10. So then I was like, okay, this is going pretty good. And then at the end of the year in 2020, my mother died. Well, there was a few other people that passed away. Like my friend passed away. One of my best friends passed away. Mark Lalonde, who was mentoring me, he passed away. Uh And then my mother passed away in November. And I found out that I had been disinherited. Well, I knew that there was a trust fund that I had been disinherited from, but I was under the impression that my family and my sister's family were still going to split the inheritance. That's what I had in my mind. And that was obviously not true because then in November, after my mother died and we did her service, I was told that I was getting nothing, zero. So I went through a two month period where I just was in this deep, dark hole. And I describe it like my heart was black. I was angry. I was hurt. I was feeling abandoned because there was a history of abandonment with my parents in the past. And I did what I had to do because I changed my mindset again, because I could no longer count on that for my retirement. No, I no longer have that. I had been a single mom for many, many years and I didn't have a lot of savings. In fact, I had very little savings. The only asset I really had was a home, like a condo that I bought in 2017 And so I just kicked myself into overdrive. That's what I did. I started calling all my clients. I started reaching out to my referral partners. I started building those relationships. I was listening to podcasts. I was changing my mindset around personal development. I was starting to grow as a human. And then I was starting to attract the same mindset of people and the same caliber of realtors and lawyers and people that wanted to work with me and liked me as a person. And Mm -hmm. that changed my business. All right, hopefully you found that conversation with Livian as inspiring as I did. I know that when I chatted with her, I was like, man, this is such an amazing story, Livian. In this next uh, segment, I talked to Rob McLister on mortgage rates, housing supply, and what he thinks most brokers should know but don't understand about mortgages as well as fixed versus variable rates. 
So what is something you think most brokers don't really know, but they should understand? Well, you know, something that doesn't get a lot of play in the media is with respect to amortizations. And, you know, obviously 25 years of standard amortization in Canada, we're in obviously a very inflationary environment. So you got inflation right now that's, you know, two to three points above a typical mortgage. So there's this thing called time value of money. And the point is that if inflation is so high uh, relative to mortgage rates, why would you take today's dollars, which are valuable compared to future dollars, and make a payment on your mortgage? And so that's an important question I think not enough people ask themselves, right? Because you can pay, you know, mortgage over any number of years, you know, 25 is the standard, people go up to 30. The longer you extend that mortgage, the more you pay it down with devalued dollars. And in a high inflationary environment, that has significant impacts on your net worth long term. So, you know, whereas you might make a mortgage payment at, uh, you know, 4% you could instead take that money and invest it in an RSP or TFSA and something that beats the rate of inflation long-term. And that's something I think more people need to think about from a retirement planning standpoint. Right, so you're basically suggesting that if we're gonna be living in a future of you know, more inflation, that paying down the mortgage with future dollars is better than current dollars, which I remember once read that the way you get rid of the debt problem is it through inflation. You need to make $500,000 not be worth what it was worth, you know, we've done it with a lot of printing of money, and I'm sure you can speak to this way better than me, but we've inflated. And now the way we kind of deal with this debt issue, what are your thoughts on that? Using inflation to make debt not as costly for the consumer, yeah. the government, for everybody. Like, I'm not just talking consumers, I'm talking even the government. It also helps them too, right? Yeah, it's kind of the same concept. So, I mean, you're paying, you know, a debt with future devalued dollars. It gets cheaper. Your incomes go up over time. You know, pain relatively declines over time. So, now, there's some people that may have literally nothing better to invest in than their mortgage, especially depending on the interest rate. And, you know, mortgages are a great tax risk adjusted return. You don't pay tax on money you save. And, you know, it's pretty risk free to pay a mortgage instead of you know, investing in the stock market, for example. But I think if you have a long enough time horizon that you need to you know, put your money to use where it's going to generate the highest risk-adjusted return for you, and very often that's not your mortgage payment. Right. So that's interesting. It's a very intelligent way to talk about a longer amortization. So would that thinking, would then an interest only make sense? So like if you had a better use of interest, would you call it risk-adjusted investment? Would it make more sense to have an interest-only payment and then put the money somewhere else? Or what are your thoughts on that? It potentially could. I mean, you know, usually interest-only, you're talking about HELOCs. And, you know, there's always this argument out there about, you know, from critics that people don't know how to take care of their own finances. So you can't really trust them with the interest-only products. I think that's ridiculous. I think that people are adults. I think that you have to, you know, let people make the right decisions for them. And so if we let people get an interest-only mortgage and they have better things to do with that cash flow, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So are you a fixed or variable guy? So for your own mortgage, what would you be? I know the answer, but I want to ask for my listeners' sake. Yeah, you know, a lot of times I'm a half and half guy, sit on the fence guy, a hybrid mortgage guy. Right now, though, so we're building a house and in December, we're going to need financing. And so at that time, 
I'm thinking the market's probably going to be, you know, 150 plus basis points higher in terms of the rates that we look at getting. So, you know, I mean, historically, it's clear cut. You know, when you have rates that go significantly above their 10 year average, there's a reversion that takes place in the not too distant future. And that, you know, reversion typically happens in, you know, a one to three year period. So I'll play the numbers, you know, we can gamble a little bit, you know, so up there, I think that, you know, floating beats fixed, certainly a five year fixed. I mean, you know, there might be a one year fixed term offer at that point. That's really, really good. So we'll, you know, you evaluate everything at the time based on spreads and suitability and, you know, the customer's needs and stuff, you know, back in um, 1981, because I know we uh, can all remember back that far. I was six. Uh, I think I went to saw Star Wars. So, and I, and I was hooked ever since. So I keep going. I don't know if Star Wars came with 1981, but yeah. Did your parents have a mortgage? Because if they did, you know, the odds are they had a shorter term mortgage. In fact, the one year fix was at a point in 1981, the most popular term. They came out with variables, I want to say uh, like December 81. Don't quote me on that exact date. It was like CIBC came out with a variable rate mortgage is like a really big thing. And like at some point, I think RBC even actually stopped selling five-year fixed mortgages. It was just an insane rate market back then. Right. And so why were people gravitated? Is it because of the inflationary market, higher rates? And so people gravitated towards shorter terms? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. Like people didn't think that, you know, rates would go up that much. And it's, you know, funny, I was reading for researching an article, I was reading stories from 81. And there's a lot of pissed off people, specifically in 1980, actually, there's a lot of pissed off people that were getting advice from their bank to renew into a one-year fixed. And then rates went up another 10 points. So, yeah, you got to make, obviously, the right decision at the right time based on the customers. You got to think about, like, let's say you did have a 10% increase in rates over a year, and you have a large percentage of the population affected by that. Now it's a bit more dispersed because you have, you know, it's probably more fixed than variable, I would say, in Canada. What you probably know better than me, but what are the stats on fixed versus variable for not talking mortgage broker clients, but as an aggregate Canadian borrowers? You know what that looks like? Yeah, overall, we're just over 50%, or at least we were based on the latest data I've seen in terms of variable. So more Okay, than, so we're actually, I would have thought fixed was slightly higher. So so, uh, yeah. so I'm talking about recent originations. So you're right, you know, fixed rates, I think they're roughly about 70% total existing debt stock. But lately, there's been, as you know, been a significant shift in variable. And so much of a shift that the regulators are getting a little antsy. And I think that, you know, potentially in the next month, we could see some action on it. You know, I always joke when it comes to Rob, when I talk to him, I feel like my IQ goes up just temporarily, of course. And then I'm talking to him like, wow, I'm getting smarter. And then he leaves and I stop talking. I'm like, oh my, I'm not any smarter. Hopefully you find some of that useful for especially with the given interest rate environment currently in. And this next segment is from episode 410, how Brian Cook uh, is the number one broker in a state he doesn't even live in. Like talk about amazing use of, you know, just thinking about outside the box and his absolute obsession with customer experience. Have a listen to this. Brian, if you recall, is a Scotsman's 142 and he's funded a thousand mortgages last year with no assistant, which is insane. Uh, have a listen. Tell me about your company's based at Laguna Beach and yet your like top producer in Utah in 2019, 2020, 2021. Tell me about that. I'm interested in, it's kind of an unusual market to choose from if you're in California. Well, like I said earlier, there's the least amount of competition. If you're in business, here's a niche of the market that has the least amount of competitors. You're going to have a higher chance of succeeding. So 
So, but why is there less competition in Utah? You told me, but I know our listeners don't, like we were talking before we turned the recorder, so I know the answer, but... Yeah, it requires an additional license as a mortgage company to get originated. There has to be a principal lending manager designated, and that requires three years of experience and 40 hours of additional education, taking additional tests. So, So these additional barriers of entry leads to less competition, leads to less consumer direct mortgage companies choosing to pick Utah. Because if you're consumer direct, you can originate a loan anywhere. Locality is meaningless. It's not the business model of realtor relationships that majority of the industry is always fighting over. You zigged in a real zig. You looked at a market. Have you ever heard the story where these companies, they got two shoe salesmen and they send them to this country. And when they get there, they go out and look and they say, hey, go out and see what you see. And they come back and the one guy goes, I can't believe it. Like nobody here has shoes. This is going to be a terrible market. And the other guy's like, oh my gosh, this is an amazing market. Nobody has shoes. And in a way, that's what you've kind of done. You saw something that a lot of people saw as a negative. You're like, hey, oh my gosh, the extra hurdles, the regulation. You're like, hold on, they're not going to clear them. So if we do, we're going to have a competitive advantage in this market. Does that sound about right? Of course, exactly. As a business, you always got to scan the landscape and you know, wherever you can make money, wherever you can succeed, why not do the extra work that other people aren't willing to do? But that comes back to the work ethic thing that we talked about. So then how did you acquire clients in Utah? So like, it's one thing to be like, okay, I'm licensed there, but then how do you get customers in a market that you're not in? So in the United States, and maybe you have this out there, you have these lead aggregators, bank rate, mortgage rate tables, and you advertise. So it's a competition. It's like the price line of mortgages. I dominated it for all 2019, basically. Number one, number one placement, just writing loans at lower margins than everybody else. We're just better at executing and more efficient than, I think I'm the probably the most efficient originator, solo originator in the country. So I'm able to you know, write three, four times the amount of loans as your average person. So I just don't charge very much. And so mortgages are a commodity. I think anybody that doesn't have a good price is trying to sell other features to direct the conversation away from price, away from rate. But at the end of the day, it's the rate that determining how much you're gonna pay on a mortgage. Right, you were talking about the website. Was it Bankrate or who was you using for that? Bankrate, Bankrate. Right, and then, okay, so there was something else that you touched on that I thought was absolutely fascinating. Some people go direct to realtors, that's their business model, you can go direct to consumer, but you seem to have a knack for going direct to consumer, but then creating more business. So talk to me about sort of, I'm interested to know like what that looked like. So, you know, break that down for me. Like you said something uh, that you'd bought a certain number of leads and then you closed Y generated Z number of referrals, you know, so that kind of thing. Yeah. So my customer experience pillars from day one were an extremely low price, fast closing time, about 18 day average, instant response and extreme efficiency. You know, speed and velocity is crucial in our business. I get a client on the phone. I'm going to close them 60 to 70% of the time. People are not responding instantly to leads. Your conversion goes down by the second. This applies to any lead, whether it's a referral or lead you purchase. So if you want to close more business, simply be relentless with your response times. Who cares what time of day or night it is? If they reach out to you, respond instantly. So I think people admire the hustle. In a lot of ways, I simply copied the Amazon model and applied it to mortgages. Or another analogy I like to use is look at Lamborghini, right? Ever wonder why Lamborghini cars don't have any advertising? The company believes in word of mouth. They've always stayed that way, and they believe it's the most effective marketing tool in their arsenal. This means if you create something greater than your competition, then the vehicles will sell itself. Lamborghini doesn't need to spend money in advertising because they have a product 
so desirable that people will share it with others without any prompting from the company themselves. So I've run my business just like Lamborghini for the past few years. Zero advertising, zero social media, zero drip mail campaigns. Are you not doing the bot leads anymore? Or is it at the top of your funnel? I haven't purchased leads since the end of 2019. I've just been writing referrals and word of mouth. And oh, okay. So tell me about how many leads did you buy? So companies like Bankrate, you provided these four things. You said low price, fast closing, instant response. What was the fourth thing? Extreme efficiency, instant response. Yeah. And then, okay. Think, so then think, how many leads Amazon. did you buy? I bought 721 leads in 2019. I closed 280 or 40% of them. From that, I generated 316 referral leads, closed 193 or 61% of the time. And then in 2020, I closed 460 repeat clients. I generated 1,088 referrals, closed 635 or 58%. And then in 2021, I closed 399 repeat clients, generated 501 referrals and closed 257 or 51% of them. Okay, okay. Dude, this is crazy. So originally you bought the 363 or the 700, you generated 300 and some leads. So that's like almost half of them are giving you a lead. What are you saying to them? Is there anything that you're, I mean, you're delivering on these things. Are you prompting them? Are you saying, hey, don't forget, send your friends and family? Like, I'm no. curious. Every funded loan, I send an email saying, hey, you know, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the business. If you know any friends or family that are in the market, please share my contact information. But it's more the memory of working with me. Everybody always says I'm different. I respond instantly. They call me a robot. They call me a machine. I just. I'm relentless. I just go above and beyond. Think how Amazon grew so fast is just obsession with the customer experience, delivering the best price in the industry, making it easy and efficient. I mean, that's what any consumer in any industry is looking for. You deliver a customer experience that's better than anything they've ever experienced before. You don't really need to do much. You create an army of they become uh, your sales raving people for you. So you basically, there. it's one. Exactly. Is there any other points in the process where you're reminding them about, hey, send me referrals? No. So you just focus, no. you obsess about the customer experience, making it extremely yeah. efficient. If you read Bezos' book, I read his book and I applied a lot of you know his philosophies to the mortgage industry. Right. To so my business. All right, hopefully that Brian Cook conversation got you fired up and be like, man, I just have to start thinking a little differently and maybe I can create a great business. In this next segment, I talked to Jason Henneberry about one of the biggest mistakes he's made in the business and the pros of running your mortgage business like an assembly line, which I totally agree with. And as I've looked at more and more businesses, I think we have to think about it that way. So have a listen to this conversation with Jason. Okay, so you did these seminars with that truckable mortgage plan. And what was the biggest mistake that you made with that i think i know what you're going to say but i don't maybe you have another mistake there. but what was the you, biggest mistake you, what you know what i'm going to say i don't I'm know sure you do i know exactly what my biggest mistake was i didn't give myself enough credit and i didn't put enough value on my role in that process so we had marketing we had funnels like we'd have to send flyers out and radio and bus ads and all this stuff so we had like a marketing department and then we had people who would like run the seminars. And then like I had assistants who would process the deals. I paid everybody so much money that there was literally nothing left. So I told you a minute ago, how much volume we did. I made no money. Like I took a billion dollars worth of mortgage apps in two years. So when the market shifted in 2008, like I drove myself into the ground, I couldn't afford the marketing anymore. And I didn't have enough margin in my business. And then the business really suffered. And I had to start letting everybody go. And the whole thing came apart. 
And so like the number one most important thing. So when I like relaunched my business online in 2012, I made sure that I kept enough money to pay for marketing, enough money that the business would be profitable and then paid the people in the process the right level so that it could scale. So I learned how to do that. Probably the takeaway lesson about like how to structure the business is what I just talked about there. Like just make sure that if you're building a business, you give yourself enough value in that process. That was my big lesson, but I had a critical error that I made and it was to solve that problem. So I wasn't making a lot of money. We had a ton of volumes, but I knew my numbers. I knew if I spent X on marketing, so many people show up to seminars, we'd take so many apps and I would fund so many deals. And I had it all dialed in because I'd been doing it for two years. I didn't want to reset all the staff, but I had this massive marketing expense. And at the time it was like radio flyers, TV, bus ads, all that kind of stuff. Like it was a full meal deal. It was a real program. We had newspaper ads. In traditional media, if you like commit to spending more, you get massive discounts. Like your radio spots, I don't even know what they are today, but at the time they were like $400 or some crazy thing, yeah. 15 seconds. But if you said, okay, I'm going to commit. Nobody listens to radio ads. anymore. I'm just kidding. What's that? <laughs> Nobody listens Nobody to listens radio. radio. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Probably it's no, what, is, what is this radio thing? Yeah. But yeah, we used to do like CKNW news. And if you wrote a check and you committed like six months in advance, you would literally get like 50%, 60, 70% off sometimes. And so you could be really strategic about your spend. So I was like, that's how I'm going to make my money. I know my numbers. I know my business. I'm going to scale the heck I, out of it. Instead of squeezing the people that I'm paying, I'll make a better deal on the marketing, which then puts more money in my jeans. Provided Correct. the market did literally went the opposite direction. So I remember August 15th, 2008, I signed off on all our marketing like 600,000 flyers a quarter prepaid. We had like a literally a massive moving truck full of flyers, all the radio, everything. And I had to achieve a certain level of performance in my seminars between then and Christmas in order. I had like 40 seminars booked or something like that in BC, Alberta, Ontario. Anyway, September 15th, the bottom fell out of the market, 2008. Capital markets dried up and nobody came to buy seminars, like nobody. I think I did one mortgage between September and December. And so I basically went bankrupt. I had to sell my house, my rental properties, everything. My wife and I started over. It was like complete disaster. Right. So yeah, yeah you know, you learned. And then, okay, so fast forward into Mortgage Pal, you get into that business and say, wait a second, instead of spending money, I mean, you spent money to be on rate sites and stuff because you were advertising, but tell me about that. Because you were early to the game. I mean, Butler's been in it forever, but like Mortgage Pal was kind of early to the game in the rate buying leads and stuff. Back in 2012, I think now it's much more established. So I'd love to know about what was kind of working then and what do you notice now? What's happened in the last 10 years of that space? So at the time, I was early, but I wasn't the earliest. So, you know, like people like True North Mortgage, True North Mortgage basically had a monopoly on not buying online rates. They had big brand presence on uh, Rate Supermarket and Rate Hub and all that kind of stuff. In fact, they launched Rate Hub. So I started just buying from those platforms as well. The thing that I noticed. I mean, there's so many lessons that we learned. I think that the thing that could be like most helpful to anybody listening to this is the world's obviously evolved and there's lots of people that are advertising online. So the one thing is back then it was quite easy to attract clients and convert clients. And I think that game is a lot harder today because there's just oh, yeah. so much competition. So yeah. there's no doubt that it's tougher if you want to apply the model, but I think there's a big misconception in terms of like, I see a lot of chatter about people who say, oh, you know, they're buying the rates down, they're giving away the farm, they can't possibly be profitable. I think that people don't necessarily always understand how smart the people are behind the scenes, like how smart Butler is or how smart Dan Eisner is 
or they know their numbers, man. There. Those guys know they know like they are the best operators in the business. And so they've got scale. And so one of the things that happened at Mortgage Pal is like I had to break the role out in order to be efficient. I had to be on the phones as much as possible. So I had a call booker who would just like literally call the leads and book them in my calendar. There were days where I would talk to 15 new clients a day and I'd get seven apps in by the end of the day. Like it was yeah. just, it was crazy volume. But in order to do that, I had to be able to like take myself out of doing the deals. And so then we needed an underwriter and actually we needed multiple underwriters and then the underwriters needed assistance. So we had all these different people doing the job. And then what I think people don't realize is when you take the mortgage process and you compartmentalize all these different roles, you actually do a better job. If you're good at it, you can service the heck out of those clients way better than if you're a solo broker who's trying to be a jack of all trades. And you see a lot of chatter. It's like, well, they couldn't possibly be delivering service if they're delivering those rates. It's the opposite. They're delivering so much service because they have to be so efficient. They're such great operators. And the right person who's got the best skill set for that particular part of the process is touching the client at that particular time. So like if you look at a solo mortgage broker, they might be really good at attracting clients. They might not be great at, you know, updates and follow-ups and things like that. Or if you've got a really good processor, they might be really good at doing the file, but they might not be so good at like bedside manner or something like that. Right. So I'm just throwing right. a couple things out. But if you take those yeah. roles and you put like a highly specialized person and then you have all these touch points, the clients come out the back end and they're like, that was the best experience I've ever had. And so these groups are able to be really efficient and they're able to deliver a good experience. And they're also really good about helping people understand and edifying their clients around like, you know, the rates that they're advertising, they're able to move them off those rates because they're able to educate the clients that maybe they prefer. There's some other features you might want to like have. And then so as clients yeah, it's up, amazing right? how many clients reach out to them for that rate and then end up with, and it's not a bait and switch. It's a, wait a second, maybe you don't qualify B like it goes to, like you said, a different product than they thought, but it's more like an assembly line. Again, that was from episode 429. If you want to go listen to the whole thing. And Jason is one of these guys I absolutely love having conversations with. So uh, go check out that full episode when you get a chance. In this next segment, I talked to Christine Buman on creating an exceptional client experience, how she does the work up front to prepare her clients and the concept of a quick to know. And I think that this is a great reminder for most of us. We got to be quick to know if we want to create a better experience instead of saying yes to things that we shouldn't. Christine does a better job of explaining it. Have a listen. We also really believe in asking as many questions up front as we possibly can. So we're going to ask them, were you ever previously married? Is there a chance you could be politically exposed? And we've really what tailored What do you mean by politically thing. exposed? So at the lawyer's office. I would want to answer that. I'd be like, what? So right? maybe that means I wouldn't be, or maybe I am. I don't know. And that's the thing is that question is going to be asked to you at the lawyer's office. Mm. So what happens if one of your clients is set to close tomorrow, they're rushing in to sign the lawyer's documents. And then the lawyer says, is there a chance you could be politically exposed? Like, what does that client experience feel like to that person? They're like, I don't think so. What does that mean? Are you trusting now the lawyer to give accurate information? And how can you get ahead of that question so that you can prep them in advance to say yeah. yes, or no. And what if they answer yes? And then the lender pulls the deal the day before closing. Right. I mean, it's such a slim chance, but if you can set the stage for the client. So in my intro call, I will tell them, we're going to ask you a series of questions. and. In my experience, it might feel a little bit invasive. You might wonder why we're asking you these questions. What I want to share with you is that 
over the last decade and thousands of mortgages that I've done, I have been preparing or whatever. I can't think of my exact verbiage that I would use in the spot, but my goal is to keep you safe at every stage of the process. So what I would encourage you to do is if you're feeling like you might be wondering why these questions are being asked, be assured that they are very strategically placed in this process at this specific time to make sure that no surprises come up for you and that we keep you safe all along the way. It's just in your best interest. So when they get a call from somebody- you on make it all Well, if you do make it all about them, then it makes sense why you're asking the questions. You're not just being like, hey, what's your favorite color or whatever, like- yeah. And then it's planting that seed in their unconscious brain, because you and I know that the surface of our conscious minds talking to each other is just the tip of the iceberg, right? So like, mm -hmm. how do we plant these seeds of knowledge so that the client is anticipating it? So then when the client starts to feel that way, their unconscious brain is like, oh, there it is. I was waiting for that unconscious question. I just chatted with a client yesterday and she's like, I can't wait to hear from your team and hear all of these super invasive questions. So right. for us, we get ahead. We have a whole slew of questions that we ask at that stage. And hopefully... But with our team, what we're working on is quick to nose. So as they're going through the questions, are they quick to nose? Okay, so you're separated. Do you have a separation agreement in place? That's quick to know. If you don't and you're just starting the separation, no problem. I wouldn't say it's a quick to know. It's a not right now. Let's pivot because I don't want to go all the way down this road with you and then see you back in six months because that's been my experience and that's what I've decided for my flow to look like. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is awesome. Okay, so you've got my wheels turning here. So I love this phrase, quick to know. Right, yes. which is you're looking for. So, how many questions do you have in that? How long does that call take? And so how many questions? Depends, do you we're have? working on speeding up that call. Um, and I'm happy to actually share them. Anybody wants to. I would love to see a copy of those questions. Mm -hmm. It'd be amazing. So, if you could send them to me and reach out to Christine, she's amazing. And okay, so give me like yeah. how many approximate questions and how long does that call take? It depends on how many we can answer from the FIMO application. So, for me, it's all about doing the work before the work. So you should only have that one call with the client and you need to get as much information as you can as possible. If they're self-employed, we have a self-employed document. You need to know where do they get their business from? What's their website? How many employees do they have? What's their gross revenue? Was their business impacted by COVID? What are they doing in the field? Like there are a series of questions that need to be asked. So what I'm working on right now is whether that's best served to be done up front and like the best place in the process, some of those additional things like BFS. But I would say in general, oh gosh, I don't know, probably 30 questions. Um, right. And it really depends on them. If like how many non-subject properties you have, because now we're going to dive. Now into, there's a whole bunch more questions. Yeah. A whole bunch more questions, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Are there any other owners on these non-subject rentals? Oh, that's a good know, question. That's like one of those things that catches you and you're like, crap, now all of a sudden you got to bring in another person or another agreement. Like, yeah, you know, just weird things like this. So so you all just of said two things, that quick that to I know have. and do the work before the work. You should have like this on a shirt, do the work before the work. Quick to know. You got like these little slogans. Um, yeah. Sorry, keep going. So all of the questions that I ask are very, very strategic and they're very specific. And they might not be for the reason that the client or you thinks that they're for. So for example, everything for us is based on how we want the client to feel at the end of the client journey. So we might ask you questions so that you feel as though we are taking care of you in a specific way. Give me an example of something that you would ask because this will be helpful. And yeah. it may seem like, huh, but you have a very strategic reason for it, but it's not obvious to the customer. Right. Okay. So an example would be, do you have a preferred way of communication or is there a specific day or time that is best for us to connect with you? And again, right. I'm obsessed with words. And if the client says nine o'clock on a Saturday, there's no chance I'm meeting them. 
because my office hours are eight to six, Monday to Friday. There's a very slim chance I will meet with anybody outside of nine to five, but they now feel like they're in control of when they get to communicate with me and that they now have this opportunity to communicate outside of the regular time because the majority of people, we also track their answers, right? And you and I know that how much I like tracking data is we track their answers and the majority of time they say, no, I'm good whenever, or it'll be somebody's open camp or whatever. And then we'll say, absolutely. We will do everything we can to accommodate that schedule for you and whatever. And it's been noted, right? Right. So now the client has the feeling that we are available to them, but we have also maintained control and we will keep the communication within that framework. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Okay. Just the fact that you even asked the question shows that you care. I got to imagine with this level of upfront work, what are your funding ratios like? They got to be good. Yeah. So submission to fund. Yeah. yeah, I would say like 85 to 95%. Yeah. And that was from episode 434. In this last episode, 436, I talked to Jim Terlucas and he shares a strategy for being successful at renewals. And it's actually not by waiting, you know, 120 days out like most people doing. He's like nine months out. And why brokers have an advantage on renewals. I think you're gonna really dig this episode. Check it out. You start at 13 months. Can you give me some like strategies or tactics for how you can be successful at renewals? Sure, sure. So most brokers will go with their clients at renewals at four months because that's when they can hold the rate, which is logical. Most banks, however, will go with the clients six months before renewal and try and get them to renew early. We go 13 months for our fixed clients, by the way, not the variable clients. And we do 13 months because that's the point at which we're able to hold the rate for four months and then execute the transfer, if you will, nine months less a day before renewal, nine months less a day. That's the critical point because it's at that point where you can actually have a client pay three months interest rather than interest rate differential. And that's with most incumbent lenders because most do have what they call a six month product on a product sheet. And that's where it works. If you're moving a client from a lender that does not have a six month term, then clearly that won't work. So you must know who you're competing against. So that's how we do it. And it works. And this rising rate environment, by the way, and we've been doing this forever, and this rate environment that we've been seeing since February, we've got a probably a 90% success rate with this. Right? So our clients can look at it and say, okay, so we call them 13 months before. Hey, let's hold the rate. Rates are rising. Sure. No problem, Jim. Go ahead and do it. We go back at them three months later or a month before it expires. We compare what's happened in the marketplace. Clearly, the rates have gone up quite a bit in the last five months. Everyone's taken up on this offer. The penalty three months interest. It's an easy win. Closing files or half-closed files the last couple of months at 3.5%, whereas today they're getting, what, 5.5%, 5.7%. Average client saving 2% on a million-dollar mortgage. You can do the math on that. It's $100,000 saving over the five-year term. Right. And by the way, this is why having somebody manage their mortgage is better than having it just sit in right? Like you are doing this because you're managing their mortgage for them. And you're not just like, Hey, an order taker, you want fries with that. And so like, I can yeah, imagine when you talk to the client, let's say, okay, let's say I'm your client and you get me the three and a half percent. Cause you talked to me at 13 months instead of waiting till four months out, you save me a hundred thousand bucks. And you're talking to the next client and say, Hey, Mr. Client, just so you know, this is the type of thing we do all the time. In fact, in the last three months, we saved our clients X amount in interest because we are in front of this. It's going to be easy for me to be like, why am I going to trust someone else to do this for me? 
Well, that's exactly right. And you know, part of our proposition is that our clients are our clients, not that they would start in this process and closing that deal, but they're our clients over the next 20 years. So one of our promises is we're your mortgage mechanic for the next 20 years. We'll take care of you. Your bank won't. And by the way, you'll never figure it out. In other words, if you're on your own and you're shopping from bank to bank, you'll never figure it out. They would never know to do that. Like, dude, I've been doing this for 16 years. You know, I would not think to deal with this whole idea of, you know, 13 months, you know, nine months less a day versus the six month rate. Like, you know, that's just some ninja stuff. Like right now we can literally end the podcast and say, peace out, you know, peace out. We're out of here. And you'd be like, okay, that was a great episode because that alone is pure gold. Yeah. But wait, there's more. No. Yeah. But wait, um, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, we have an advantage as mortgage brokers. You know, I've talked to a lot of broker friends of mine, and they're really upset about the marketplace. We are no longer and haven't been for a while the lowest rate in the marketplace. If you're competing on rate, you're done. Unless, of course, you're one of the big guys who have built a great business on living on 40 or 50 basis points. But that's not most of us, right? Aside from those five or six firms, that's not us. You've got to build a business around helping your clients. And it's funny, through the coaching that we do under your firm, you know, one of the things I talk about to the students is, you know, most people, when it comes to mortgages, they're what I call unconsciously incompetent. In other words, they don't know very much in mortgages. However, they don't know that they don't know very much. So they're the most dangerous type because they actually assume they're the worst. They They don't even know they don't know anything. Yeah. And our job like the flat earthers. No offense to anybody who's listening who's a flat earther. (laughs) (laughs) To be successful in this business, my approach is I've got to move these people from being unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent. I want them to know that they don't know squat. Simple as that. And there's a bunch of things that we do along the way when we get a client who comes in, hey, what's your best rate? And we educate them and they walk out somewhat defeated, right? Somewhat defeated, but at least they know they got me in their pocket. I'm their mortgage mechanic, right? So they walk in thinking they know a whole bunch. They walk out of this conversation feeling crap. You know, Jim asked me, what are five other things that I care about besides rate? And most people, it's a blank. They don't have anything to ask. And that's the first step, right? And here. Right off the bat, they know that they don't know very much. And did you know that? It's my classic line. Did you know that? Right? Oh, didn't your bank tell you this? Didn't your bank tell you that? And again, I spent the whole 15-minute conversation trying to move them from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent. In essence, what we're doing is we're creating doubt. Right? Client comes in. If you have a way of creating doubt in their mind and solving that doubt, race not even a discussion. No, because again, what would the rate difference have to have been for somebody who didn't have their mortgage managed and that's $100,000 you save them because you're at the 13 month mark. Like it's just not even mathematically possible. Like it's not, you know, one of those wins alone, that is a game changing over the term of the amortization of your mortgage. One of those little tweaks is massive, right? Yeah. That's one of the campaigns of the early renewal. We've got 13 that we do, all the, you know, consistently in year in and year out. And they're pretty successful, right? Here's the difference. All of us have a CRM tool, right? All of us have tools that go out and touch our clients. My CRM tool touches my clients 50 times over the course of the five years. So what? That doesn't mean very much. All that does is keeps me top of mind. You know, who cares? Happy birthday, happy anniversary, change your furnace filter, happy Halloween. Who cares about that stuff? That means nothing, right? We've actually built a tool that actually creates value. So through these 13 campaigns, when we touch a client, we're only touching them if there's value. So what's value to a client? 
right? What's value? Value could be saving them money, right? Value could be protecting them against themselves and the product and the marketplace. And value could be finding and solving their pain points, right? So what I call POP, right? For me, POP is pain points, opportunity to save money, and protect your clients. There's a different framework within what we talk about in our training, but once you go down this path with a client, you've got them for life. All right, I think it's been an amazing year. We broke a million downloads this year for the first time ever. Well, because we have never done it before, so I guess that would make it the first time ever. And uh, so thanks again for listening to the show. Thanks again for the guests that we've had on and the people we've got to talk to. I always find that I learn something. I take notes from every show, and then I go back and try to apply it to our businesses. And hopefully you've got some things from these. Go back and have a listen to these episodes if you want to get the full experience, if you miss them, or even often you got to re-hear the same thing a few times in order to really for it to sink in. So I'd encourage you even to do that. Don't think just because you listen to it once that you really got it all because we don't actually. So go check it out. Thanks again for listening to this episode. I will see you when we start up again in the new year and we'll be talking soon. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.